Introducing the Lisa Chill Collection, your answer to hot nights. These mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers, whisking away heat for the perfect sleep temperature. Save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows when you shop now. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Got menopause? We've got you. Hi, Jackie here, founder of ExoJackie. Feel supported throughout your menopause journey and beyond with our organic protein powders and symptom relief boosts. Formulated to keep bones and muscles strong, ExoJackie products help reduce bloating, hot flashes, and weight gain. Enjoy 20% off with promo code EXOPODCAST. Shop now at exojacqui.com. Made for women by women. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Taking a walk. I was touring with Steely Dan, touring with Linda Ronstadt. Again, I'll play with Johnny Rodriguez. And I was on tour with the Doobies in England. Uh, we were playing at Nebworth, the big Nebworth festival. And I talked to the guys in Steely Dan. I talked to Walter and Donald, and they had said, hey, that we just don't want to tour anymore. I said, well, okay. I enjoyed touring. I, I thought that was fun. Welcome to the Taking a Walk podcast. Join host Buzz Knight on this episode with a guitar legend responsible for some of the greatest riffs in music history. Jeff Skunk Baxter is known for his work with Steely Dan, the Doobie Brothers, Linda Ronstadt, and a host of others. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the Doobie Brothers in 2020. Skunk also works as a defense consultant and advises members of the U.S. Congress on missile defense. He's an amazing storyteller and an artist still committed to his craft. Let's join Buzz Knight and Jeff Skunk Baxter next on Taking a Walk. I welcome Jeff Skunk Baxter. Thank you for the kind words, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you. So you have quite a history in the Boston area. Um, What was the music scene like when you were roaming around the mean streets of Boylston Street and the back bay of Boston? Uh, it was alive and well, and it was very eclectic. Boston, believe it or not, in the whole New England area, had a very large country western presence. Uh, I think part of it came because the trucks that would come up 95, you know, they'd be listening to WWVA coming out of West Virginia, and they'd be coming up Route 95, and when they get to Boston, they were looking for, you know, music. And there was a, a huge, you know, country uh, presence. And then 
again, I, I actually did some interesting gigs. I played at a place called Paul's Mall, a jazz workshop. Uh, I was asked to do something called Who Is This Guy Gershwin Anyway, which was someone had put together a, a wonderful, I think it was Jeff Lass, who had put together a wonderful evening of Gershwin songs sung by different actors and actresses. And the four of us, we had a four-piece band, would play arrangements of the Gershwin stuff. And we were doing this every night, like five, six nights a week. So besides the rock and roll scene and the blues scene, which was huge in Boston, there was the psychedelic supermarket. There was, again, Paul's Mall, the jazz workshop. There was uh, so many clubs and places to play in Boston. There was something for everybody. And that's when you got into um, really the mechanics of guitars and the work that you did in the shop there and everything. Is that correct? Well, actually, I grew up in Mexico City, so there was nobody to repair anything. So pretty much, um, I guess, if you want to figure out which way the electrons go, you stick a knife into the toaster, you figure that out pretty quick. And I was a... Uh, an older gentleman who was a TV radio repairman that I met, a Mexican gentleman, who had let me spend some time in his shop, taught me a few things. And the rest of it was just hunt and peck until, you know, I got figured it out. And then uh, I had a little bit of knowledge at the time because while I was still in Mexico, I was going to boarding school in Connecticut. And my parents, sometimes I, I wouldn't fly home all the way to Mexico City simply for a short vacation. So I would spend it in New York City, either working at Jimmy's Music Shop or eventually working for Dan Armstrong, who was the guru of guitar customizing and learned pretty much uh, um, the bulk of my knowledge about guitars and especially about guitar electronics. And so taking that to Boston, working with uh, folks at EU World, sir, and... Uh, Dave Schechter and I had a, our own guitar shop. Uh, Dave went on to found Schechter Guitars. Um, and yeah, just, just getting into, you're right, getting into the, the ins and outs of which way the electrons go. <laughs> but you've always really had this uh, sort of change agent uh, approach to whether it be music or other things in life. When did you discover that uh, you're a change agent? Wow, I probably didn't understand the term until my dad explained it to me when I was very young. And I I didn't really see myself as a change agent. Uh, many times I saw myself as getting into trouble uh, um, because of, I guess, the idea of, well, no, 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 I want to do something else, or this is not right, or uh, pardon me for saying something here. Uh, I, I guess... Probably in the Boston area, when I started to to customize guitars and try to get guitar players, um, help them uh, customize their sound and give them the help them give them the tools. And some of the things we did, I mean, were really nuts. I had a good friend of mine who uh, kept putting cigarettes up on the headstock of his guitar, you know, while I was smoking. And they would burn down and they would, you know, burn the finish on the guitar. So I thought, that's that's not good. So I hunted around 
found one of those circular ashtrays from a 39 Buick and installed it in his Telecaster. So he could just have it out there and put his cigarette there while he was playing. Uh, you know, just, I guess, things like that. <laughs> when you were in high school, um, you worked in New York at, was it Manny's Guitar Shop? Jimmy's. Jimmy's, okay. Yeah. And... Um, you ran into this other Jimmy there uh, named Jimmy Hendrix. Is that correct? Yeah, he was calling himself Jimmy James at the time. Yeah. And uh, what did you, what was your take on him when you first met him? Quiet, reserved, um, thoughtful, um, introspective. And when I finally got a chance to hear him play, I was absolutely stunned. And, but a very nice guy, really a nice guy is the wrong word, a very, very deep, intense and open and thoughtful person. Yeah, I heard him described as sweet by Felix Cavalieri from The Rascals. He he said sweet was the way he described him. Yeah. Yeah. He, he had no, all he wanted to do was play music. And he also served in the military. So it was interesting at the time, the, uh, the, the rift that was opening in American society because of the Vietnam War, certainly many, I would say the bulk of the musicians were somewhat anti-war for good reasons. But Jimmy kept quiet about it. He didn't discuss it. And I think when he played his version of the Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock, he did it because deep down inside, he cared about his country. He was a patriot. Did you ever get to sit in him with him? With uh... I did for a couple of songs. And of course, that blew up into, you know, I played with Jimi Hendrix. But uh, very, 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 very. And when I say open. It, there, there's something amongst musicians that I, I call musicians etiquette, where when you play together, you listen to the other musician. You don't just jump in. You know, you listen, you get a feel for what's going on, and you try to add to the overall um, experience, To not to be a punful here, but to the overall experience. And he was like that. Certainly, he he could have held his own and he could have dominated anything. But for the most part, he was very, he had a great amount of etiquette, music etiquette, I guess I would say. Has that departed these days, uh, music etiquette or etiquette in general? <laughs> I, I don't think it's changed all that much. There is always a group of musicians who feel it necessary to uh, dominate whatever situation that they're in, for whatever reason, that won't get you very far, far as a studio musician. We, we had a saying back in the 70s when, you know, some guy would come in brand new and he was just, you know, wouldn't shut up. And you go, hey, man, I really dig what you're trying to do, which was sort of a backhanded, you know, you know knock it off. <laughs> Kind of the equivalent of bless your heart, right? There you go. That's it. Right. That's it. <laughs> so how? tell me the story how you fell into this work with uh, these guys, uh, 
Becker and Fagan, otherwise uh, known as the foundation with you and uh, others of Steely Dan? Well, I was working in Boston. Uh, I was spending a playing in a bunch of different bands. Uh, I was playing bass for Tim Buckley. I was in the Holy Modal Rounders, which was the craziest band ever. More fun than anybody should ever be allowed legally to have. And I was doing a lot of work in a place called Intermedia Sound on Newberry Street. And I wasn't the house guitar player by any means, but because I was spending so much time there, people would say, oh, we need a guitar part. Uh, oh, yeah, Skunk said, over, uh, okay, let's, you know, he'll come in and do it. And I was doing something, and I'm trying to remember whether it might have been for Jonathan Edwards. I wasn't, I don't, I can't quite remember, but uh, there was a band called The Bead Game, which was a Boston-based band, wonderful band. Uh, great guitar player, John Sheldon. Uh, just, just one of those musical bands. And a gentleman named Gary Katz was producing that band. And I guess he stuck his head in when I was doing a session with somebody. And later on that day, he said, I'm doing a project in New York. Would you be willing to come down and work on the project? And I was doing session work both in Boston and New York. I was commuting living in Boston, but I was commuting back and forth. And I said, sure. So I went down there. He introduced me to a wonderful lady named Linda Hoover, who was doing a record uh, in New York. And a good chunk of the material was by a pair of songwriters named Walter Becker and Donald Fagan. And as we started working on the record, uh, I got to know Walter and Donald a little bit. And afterwards they said, you know, we've never heard anybody play guitar quite like that. I said, well, gentlemen, I've never heard music like this. And so there was this sort of, okay, whoever gets their nose under the tent uh, calls everybody else and, and will form a band. So Becker and Fagan managed to get a publishing deal through Gary Katz with ABC Records in Los Angeles. And I was already moving out there to play with other bands anyway. I was playing pedal steel. I actually was working at the Palomino Club um, and doing session work and guitar repair out in, um, in Los Angeles. And somehow or other, after they got the publishing deal, we thought about putting together a band. And that's how it, that's how it happened. They said, do you know any drummers? I said, yeah, the drummer for the beat game, Jimmy Hodder. Uh, do you know any lead singers? Yeah, Dave Palmer. Um, and, of course, Denny Deals was a friend of theirs as well. So there you go. Wow. You know, they've recently um, been unearthing and re-releasing a lot of those uh, Midnight Specials from uh, Burt Sugarman. Yeah, I saw that. And... Um, the the Steely Dan uh, episodes are absolute knockouts. Um, what was your recollection of how the audience felt about what they were seeing? Because the performance is spectacular. You had the two uh, ladies with the flapper hats singing and and skunk, you know, just wailing away. And 
I mean, what I was struck with for a band that for so long didn't look like it was always having fun when they were in front of people, it looked like a lot of fun. Yeah, I... Uh... First of all, we had a great time, and the uh, the background singers were David Cassidy's background singers, and they were phenomenal, phenomenal singers. Plus, Royce Jones, who was playing percussion and also singing backgrounds, uh, Royce would step up to sing any major dude, uh, and wherever we were, immediately turned into a club. His delivery and his vocal style was so uh, inviting. Uh, guy was an incredible singer. Everybody was an amazing musician. And I think it's a there's a bit of mythology that perhaps was promoted by Walter and Donald that they didn't like to play live and that there was something about that that was less than... I, I I I can't find the word to describe it, but just didn't wasn't worthy as 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 being in the studio, and that's really not true. Uh, we had a great time, and we were a band. And there's something about the chemistry between musicians who work together. Uh, certainly, Steely Dan's later works uh, with just Walter and Donald hiring studio musicians, of which we were all anyway was excellent, but there was something special about the chemistry. And you could see it. You could feel it. And I don't know, we were having a ball. I, I'm not quite sure what the problem was, you know? <laughs> it, it's The performances are spectacular. Oh, my God. It just uh, knocked me out, and I've watched it uh, half a dozen times and shown it to people, and um, and you're just blazing on that one for sure. Oh, thank you, sir. I was having a good time. So then the Doobie Brothers kind of was flowing. You were doing session work, right, with them, and you were still part of steely dan but it looked like things were going to kind of go in a direction where steely dan would get off of touring so was that how you ended up making the decision to go from session player to full-time doobie brother well we had the band steely dan i was also playing in linda ronstadt's band playing steel pedal steel and out touring with johnny rodriguez and you know a bunch of just all I wanted to do was play, spend all my time playing, whether it was in the studio or with other bands. And Steely Dan was opening for the Doobie Brothers on a number of, of concert tours. And very nice guys, they said, hey, would you like to sit in for a couple of songs? Sure. And then it was four songs, and then it was six songs, and then it was half the show, and then uh, finally, would you like to go out on tour with us? I said, sure. And so I was touring with them, touring with Steely Dan, touring with Linda Ronstadt. Uh, again, I'm playing with Johnny Rodriguez. Uh, and I was on tour with the Doobies in England. Uh, we were playing at Nebworth, the big Nebworth festival. And I talked to the guys in Steely Dan. I talked to Walter and Donald, and they had said, hey, that we just don't want to tour anymore. I said, well, okay. Um, 
I enjoyed touring. I, I thought that was fun. And I, I, again, it was the mythology of, well, what's the problem here? So when I hung up the phone, I said, well, that's kind of it for me and Steely Dan. And one of the members of Doobie Brothers said, well, now you're in the Doobie Brothers. I went, okay, great. Thank you. <laughs> and away we go. And what's some of your favorite uh, memories from the work with the Doobie Brothers? And how did you bring Michael McDonald into the band? Well, I have great, great memories simply because there was great interaction. At the time when Tommy was still in the band, Tommy Johnston, all of us had a, a predilection for uh, three guitar players because one of the bands that all of us admired was Moby Grape. I think they were probably the best American rock and roll band ever. And they had three guitar players. And they figured out how to do that without creating a traffic jam. I always said it's like a three-masted schooner and everything's working just fine. And the three of us playing together with very different styles, I think, uh, created almost like a guitar orchestra. So that was tremendous fun. And one day we were about to perform at Louisiana State University when uh, Tom got extremely ill. He had an ulcer attack or something and couldn't go on stage. So, I don't know, sometimes you got to make a command decision, right? So I walked out on stage. I said, like, everybody can have their money back. There are probably, I don't know, 40,000 people there or something. Or you can wait 10 days. And we'll put on a show. So I got off stage and said, well, okay. So now that I pulled that trigger, so I got on the phone to call Michael McDonald, who had been touring with us in Sealy Dan uh, and playing keyboards and singing background. And said, Michael, you really need to do this. This would be great. And he said, okay. There's a one-way ticket waiting for you at the airport. Get on, plane, come out to New Orleans. So we rehearsed for eight to 10 hours a day for eight days and went out and played the show, got five encores. And I thought, okay, maybe I made the right decision here. <laughs> I love it. Talk about your time with Linda Ronstadt. What a uh, magical moments that must have uh, been in your life. Well, first of all, it's hard. It's hard to describe Linda as anything but the consummate female vocalist. She didn't try to be a man. She was, I think her, her idol, not idol, but her heroine uh, would have been Patsy Cline. She loved Patsy Cline. And we did a lot of Patsy, Patsy Cline songs in the set. She was very sweet. She wasn't a wallflower. She knew what she wanted, but she also relied on the talent and the capability of the musicians in the band. You know, John Boylan playing keyboards, Richie Haywood on drums, you know, Andrew Gold playing guitar, Bobby Warford playing a guitar and um, pull, pull string guitar. I mean, what a band. Uh, actually, I think we ended up sort of leaving Linda's employ because the band was so powerful. Uh, it kind of steamrolled her every once in a while. But the, we had a ball because we were, again, a unified group of guys. Everybody was pretty much a studio guy. 
I mean, um, everybody had worked in the studios as well as their own bands. And Richie Haywood, my God, what a drummer. Little Feet, please. You know, so uh, everywhere we played, everyone loved her. It was like, I, I had never seen anyone walk out or be unhappy at all with her music. And she was enthralling. Her, her, her spirit and her voice really got inside your DNA. And it was beautiful. I mean, there were times when I thought, maybe I should just not play and sit back and enjoy this. But, you know, you got you know, to play. I was playing pedal steel in the band. Did you teach yourself pedal steel? Yeah. Yes. Um, I didn't, I, I couldn't find any books. And I figured, like guitar, you just shed. Spend the time. Listen to everything that you possibly can. Learn from it. And because I was repairing guitars, <clears throat> I was also repairing steel guitars. So I understand the mechanics of it. So it would help me. Uh, I practice a lot even when I wasn't playing the instrument. That's what I do when I play the guitar, too. I'll look at the music, and I'll be flying on a plane somewhere, and I'll have learned the song by the time I get there, because I just practice virtually. And so I spent every waking minute that I had the time practicing, whether it was actually on the instrument or in my mind. I see some guitars in the background. Do you just pick up guitars all throughout the day? play around when i have the time when i have the time and then uh yeah it's uh back there there she is you know there's my baby right there my pedal steel much love for that instrument um i think the pedal steel is the most beautiful instrument in the world it seems like it has an uncanny ability to get inside people's dna I did something the other day for Maui for for some to raise some money, and I did a pedal steel part on uh, Amazing Grace. I turned around, and there were two ladies in the room, and they were like sobbing. I went, "Did I screw something up?" And they go, "No, it's just so beautiful. The instrument has a special magic to it when it's played right." I would imagine you saw Garcia play pedal steel at one point uh, mm -hmm. and Sneaky Pete play pedal steel. Oh, what a great steel player, Sneaky one. There was a guy who was right, right out of the, out of the, what can I say, the no holes barred for Sneaky. Absolutely. You're talking about, uh, you know, how beautiful the pedal steel is. And, um, you know, we produced this other podcast. It's called Music Save Me. It's about, music and sort of the healing forces um do you believe music is has healing supernatural powers uh i would have to we would have to have a separate discussion about the use of the word supernatural but other than that absolutely what many people don't understand is why music has such an effect from a purely physiological point of view, the brain operates on a cocktail of neurotransmitters, oxytocin, 
adrenaline, vasopressin, uh, serotonin, all of these neurotransmitters each trigger a specific or a set of specific emotions. So when you mix them in a, in a cocktail, you then have the opportunity, at, if you can stimulate that secretion of those neurotransmitters, the opportunity to actually map out and produce emotions in people. It's like when you fall in love, uh, mostly you fall in love, or at least physiologically and biologically, you fall in love because both of you are manufacturing hefty amounts of oxytocin. They call it the love drug. That, that, that bonds you to that other person, or binds you, depending on where you're coming from. So there's no doubt in my mind. And I've had situations, it's been kind of fun. I've had crusty guys, you know, Marine Corps generals, you know, ah, yeah, well, whatever. I said, okay, man, sit down here. I'm going to pick up this guitar, and I'm going to run you through a whole spectrum of emotions. And they go, ah, yeah, right. And by the end of it, they're going, whoa. I said, well, this is how this works. The different combination of frequencies, coherent oscillations that emanate from the instrument, are what stimulate the neurotransmitters in your brain. And what people, a lot of people, it's not that they don't understand it, they just never, nobody's ever sat down and explained it to the linearity of frequency from zero to, to, to pure energy, somewhat embodied in Einstein's equation, E equals MC squared, energy equals mass times the speed of the square of the speed of light, so that they're one and the same. Music is just a portion of the spectrum that, that stimulates human beings. Why does art stimulate human beings? Why are the colors in certain combinations so effective? Well, if you strike the A string on a, on a guitar, it vibrates at 440 times a second. In other words, it goes through 440 full cycles, and that we recognize as the note A below middle C. If you multiply that times two, the, the harmonic of that is 880 cycles per second. So you hear A an octave above that note. Multiply it again. Every time you go up, you get a higher note an octave above, which is just the, the physics of it. Well, you know what happens when you multiply A 440 times 10 to the 23rd power? You know what the super harmonic is? It's green, the color green. All that is is the super, super harmonic. The frequency, one, uh, 440 cycles per second, vibrating millions of times. So it's all connected. So color, light, sound. When, when, when you go up the frequency scale and the, the human being... Their sensor package is only attuned to certain parts of the frequency spectrum. So after you get past about 20, 25,000 cycles, your ears don't hear anymore. Then you start to move up the spectrum, and all of a sudden your skin gets warm. Ah, oh, you're in the infrared. 
And then if you keep going, you get past the infrared into the visible spectrum, red, all the way through yellow, green, and then all the way to blue, then it disappears again because your sensor package is only attuned to a particular amount till finally you're ending up with gamma rays and, you know, billions of, of frequencies frequency vibrating at billions of times a second. And that's where you get things like the crushing of hydrogen atoms into helium and releasing tremendous amounts of energy. That's how a star works. What binds subatomic particles together? Frequency, electromagnetism. It's all the same. People say, well, how did you get involved in all this defense stuff? I mean, how do you know anything about that? I said, hey, man, a radar is just an electric guitar on steroids. Physics is all the same. Once you understand the physics of it, it's all the same. It's beautifully organized and heuristic. May I call you Dr. Baxter? No, 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 no. No, I, I, I don't deserve that. Are you still doing um, defense work or the war college kind of work, uh, war game stuff? Absolutely. A lot of war gaming. And a, I mean, I can't, I, I got to be careful. Uh, but I do a lot of work that has to do with space and space warfare and ISR, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, uh, unconventional warfare. Uh, things that are a little to the left or right of, of conventional thinking. I think that's why they keep me around. Let's talk about the work you're doing musically now and how it excites you because, you know, we got the, the dates coming up. Um, I know you love being out there, you know, talking to people and playing in front of people. But uh, talk about the work now that you're doing in the studio. Well, I still do a, a, a little bit of studio work. It's really in my time. It, it's a time management problem. Between my day job working for Uncle Sam and going out and playing, I just don't have a lot of time to do too many sessions anymore. But the solo project, I've never done anything like it. And it's it's been a, a delightful journey to go out and play what I want to play. And working with a tremendous musician, C.J. Vanston, who was my co-producer, and we co-wrote a lot of the music on this record, finally gave me an opportunity, which I had had opportunities before to do a solo project, but never either had the time or felt that I really wanted to. But C.J. and I were working on and off in the studio, and... I guess it's like a a jar full of pennies. Eventually, you got to roll them up. I mean, you, you know, you're you're it's full now. So that's kind of what happened with this solo project. And I'm having a just a ball. The musicians I'm playing with are, <laughs> my God, uh, drummer Mark Damien, first call studio guy, younger guy, but in the pocket. He's an old soul. He plays like he's an old soul. Our bass player, uh, Hank Horton, from Detroit, is first call, bass player, great lead singer, also happens to be the bass player for the Detroit Symphony. I mean, 
then our keyboard player, CJ, obviously, you know, producer, composer, you know, incredible musician. He hasn't been able to be out with us for a while. So our new keyboard player is a gentleman named Jay Raymond, who, James Raymond, who, uh, sorry, Jay Raymond was the four-star general head of Space Force. I got them all confused. James Raymond is uh, David Crosby's son and is infused with musical DNA. Frightening keyboard player. Frightening musician. So, yeah, it's... (laughs) I'm just having way more fun than probably is legally allowed playing with these guys. And then when we play, I get to tell stories because people seem to want to hear as it seems that as you and I are having our discussion here, they want to hear stories. They want to hear the, uh, the naissance of things. They want to know how people interacted and where things come from. Uh, so we're just having too much fun. Oh, that's awesome. City Winery, November 9th. In closing, I want to ask you if there's anybody that, um, dead or alive, uh, that you could have had a studio session with, who, who would these people be? It's hard to say. Um, because I've had a chance to play with everybody from Oscar Peterson to, uh, Gene Simmons. You know, it's, uh, I'd have to think about that. And I'm so I'm not trying to be disingenuous. I've been pretty lucky to play with folks that I I want. I guess one guy I would have loved to play with was Manita de Plata, the classical guitar player. That guy has some something, some magic, karma, halo, energy, aura, something or other. I would have loved to have been able to be inside that energy field. But I've been a pretty lucky guy to play with a lot of great folks. Well, I'm pretty lucky to get to talk to you. And uh, I can't tell you the the joy of the music that uh, you continue to give us is so appreciated. Uh, And uh, the Taking a Walk podcast is proud to have you on. If uh, anybody wants to share this with all their gazillion friends we would really love that we're available uh everywhere you get your podcast but uh jeff skunk baxter it's an honor to talk to you and and uh thanks for being on taking a walk thank you very much for your hospitality thanks for listening to this episode of the taking a walk podcast share this and other episodes with your friends and follow us so you never miss an episode Taking a Walk is available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Introducing the Lisa Chill Collection, your answer to hot nights. These mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers, whisking away heat for the perfect sleep temperature. Save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows when you shop now. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off 
by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Got menopause? We've got you. Hi, Jackie here, founder of ExoJackie. Feel supported throughout your menopause journey and beyond with our organic protein powders and symptom relief boosts. Formulated to keep bones and muscles strong, ExoJackie products help reduce bloating, hot flashes, and weight gain. Enjoy 20% off with promo code EXOPODCAST. Shop now at exojacqui.com. Made for women by women. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.